The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us over the internet today, and also new listeners on radio stations in Texas, Ohio, New York, Colorado, Florida, and in all 50 states. Thank you for making us part of your news week. In just a moment, one of our country's most successful criminal prosecutors, Mr. Juan Martinez, will be joining us. And we're going to take a look at whether the justice system is stacked in favor of the perpetrator and what reforms are necessary to make sure dangerous criminals don't walk free and those falsely accused don't pay the ultimate price. But before Mr. Martinez joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Juan Martinez's family emigrated from Mexico to California when he was just six years old. He was an ambitious student and athlete, eventually earning his law degree from Arizona State University. Martinez was admitted to the bar in 1984, and four years later he joined the Maricopa County Attorney's Office in Arizona. Martinez has devoted the past 27 years to representing the citizens of Maricopa, often leading the prosecution team in some of the most disturbing and newsworthy cases, something we'll hear more about later in today's program. He prosecuted the first woman to receive the death penalty in Arizona, the first murderer to use sleepwalking as a defense, and more recently, the televised case against Jody Arias, about which he released a book earlier this year year. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report a criminal prosecutor who the defense is never happy to see, Mr. Juan Martinez. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Martinez. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Before we get to your book and the Jody Arias case, uh, I think it might be helpful to understand what prosecutors and victims are up against under the rules which govern the criminal justice system today. So, Let's start with one of the biggest biases, the fact that a prosecutor must convince every single member of a jury, whereas all the defense has to do is convince one member of a jury. Is that right? Yeah, that's how it works uh, out here in Arizona. And uh, I, I don't think that uh, that's necessarily uh, too high a burden. Uh, if it's a liberty of somebody is going to be taken away from them, uh, if they're going to be incarcerated or perhaps the ultimate penalty is to be exacted, uh, uh, we want to make sure that uh, all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted and that every every single avenue uh, that, that could possibly be explored is explored and that every single chance uh, is, is, is utilized so that uh, later on we don't have any wringing of hands, gnashing of teeth saying, well, perhaps we could have done this, perhaps we could have done that. Maybe, you know, if it was if it was only eight to four, that isn't good enough. This way, there can be no doubt. And it's certainly one of, I think, highlights of the, of the system that we have here in America. But that's quite a bias on a 12-person jury. You have the burden of convincing 12 people as opposed to the defense who only has to sway one. <laughs> I would imagine you prefer trial where you only have to appeal to a judge. Well, I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I, I. I think I. I maybe I. I just like the uh, jury system a little bit uh, too much. But um, if, if, for example, the defense only convinces, convinces one person, that doesn't mean that the case goes away. That means that it's uh, a hung jury, which means that uh, a what they call a mistrial is declared, and and there's another day in which the case is presented to the uh, court. In terms of uh, judges, I, I prefer to uh, have the the community, if you will, uh, impose the standard. Or the, or the will uh, of that particular um, 
state or, or county and uh, have them be the conscience of, of, of the system and uh, have them uh, decide whether or not this individual should be the charge of first degree murder actually committed it. And uh, I guess uh, I've, I've, I've seen cases, lots of cases, uh, where, where, where uh, they are so in-depth, the jurors are, in taking a look at things that uh, I have nothing but praise for them and how thorough that they are. Now, there's another uh, reason that the system seems uh, much more difficult for the victims and the prosecutors, and that is that after a conviction and sentencing, a defendant can appeal their case, send it back to trial, have a sentence changed, or even have their entire case overturned. But once a sentence is handed down in court, a prosecutor is pretty much done. I mean, they can't keep trying a person over and over again. In other words, defendants seem to have many more opportunities even after a trial is finished to prove their innocence. Well, you're talking about double jeopardy, and you are correct. Uh, if uh, if a case goes to a jury and the jury decides that uh, the person is not guilty, that's the end of the inquiry. Uh, whereas if the uh, defendant is convicted, there is always uh, an appeal. Um, here in Arizona, it depends on uh, the, the conviction, but if it's uh, if a death sentence is imposed, then it's appealed directly to the Arizona Supreme Court. But again, I mean, that's just uh, another one of the safeguards so that uh, I know that we hear many times over and over, this person was wrongfully convicted, this person uh, perhaps didn't get as much justice as they deserved. Uh, what you just pointed out uh, sort of argues against uh, those individuals who say, well, the system is, is, um, is such that it discriminates, if, if you will, against certain, certain defendants or it discriminates against certain parts of the uh, population. Um, I, I, as you have pointed out, there are many, many chances to show that that's not true. And uh, that is one of the strengths of the system, I think. Well, I don't know if it's a strength or not. I, I just, in looking at the uh, burden that falls on a prosecutor as a layman, right? I am not a lawyer, uh, and I and I am not part of the criminal justice system. It seemed to me that it was not only not a uh, even playing field; it was stacked so much in favor of the uh, defendant. Well, uh, I, I can. But, but you don't that. seem to feel that way, and I'm I'm surprised. No. Even the burden mm-hmm. of proof, uh, you know, just looking at the fact that the defense only has to inject even an imaginary doubt, right? A plausible right. scenario that never even happened, and probably has never happened in the history of mankind. <laughs> uh, they they can present a plausible scenario, and that's enough to to prove doubt. Well, um, I appreciate that, that point of view, um, and, and I guess that's what I think is the sort of the, the, the beauty to me or the symmetry of the system is that you can have all of these uh, what appears to be and uh, appears to be a slanted playing field, as, as I think you mentioned. You can have all of that, and in spite of that, there is still the conviction or there still is the death verdict. So, again, later on, you can't. You, you won't have to sit back and you listen to people down the road saying, well, look, this could have happened, that could have happened, or, that, or the other thing could have happened. None of that. You, you don't need to listen to that because that has already been put out there. Uh, a jury has decided otherwise. And so it, it makes, I guess, uh, sleeping at night a little bit better because you know that it wasn't a fluke kind of thing where the person was convicted. Maybe the evidence wasn't as strong as it could have been. Uh, it, 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 this, this, this system lends itself to making sure that there are no errors that are made. And, and I'm very comfortable with that. And I think you bring up a good point because the system uh, really has so many safeguards and is stacked in favor of the defendant. There are very few cases uh, percentage wise that get through that are wrongful convictions and have to be overturned later on. And believe me, we haven't even touched on the fact that defendants who have money can hire teams of lawyers and overwhelm the prosecutor's office with with demands for motions and paperwork and so on and so forth. Well, well, you you made a good point when you said that it could be overturned later on. The reason that they're overturned later on is because of all the reviews that uh, have taken place. And again, that that's another strength that uh, it's 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 the redundancy of the system that it's not just the jury looking at it. We have uh, we have appeals courts that look at it, and, and both in the state and the federal system. So that in and of itself, when when we hear you know the crimes from the top of the steeple that uh, uh, these people were wrongfully convicted, 
Well, it may have been that with a small percentage, that may have happened. A very small percentage, given the way that the system is set up. Now, we have to take a short break, but stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Juan Martinez. You're listening to the Costa Report. Imagine hearing the words, your child has cancer. The emotional impact is staggering. They tell you that treatment may last for years. And you travel the long road between hospital and home. Your financial worries multiply. And you want to stay strong for everyone, especially your child. But nobody understands. Your friends and family don't get it. Where do you turn? For the last 18 years, Jacob's Heart has provided essential support to families enduring the unimaginable. We have been there from the time of diagnosis all the way through the course of treatment, regardless of the outcome. With no government funding and no reimbursement for services, Jacob's Heart relies 100% on support from our community to make miracles happen for families. Please support Jacob's Heart by going to our website, jacobsheart.org. Or call us at 831-724-9100. Make a difference in the life of a child. Thank you. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and drag and drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most important impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash Costa. That's Tableau dot com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years. And what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. We humans are proud of our brains and our ability to think and be aware. We even named ourselves Homo sapiens, meaning man who is wise. But humans are emotional creatures too. And while we've been taught that the brain controls the actions of the body and its organs, what's a lot less appreciated is the impact the organs have on the activity of the brain. This relationship is especially significant when it comes to the heart. And while there's an obvious connection between what we think in our heads and what happens in the heart, as it turns out, coronary signaling to the brain is just as extensive as the other way around. The heart is the seat of our emotions, and when we're angry or depressed, heart messages to the brain are chaotic and disorganized. This results in an inhibitory effect on higher cognitive functions, suppressing our ability to learn, reason, and remember and make good decisions. What's more, because the link goes in two directions, the heart's input to the brain when we're under emotional duress also returns back to the heart, ultimately impacting cardiac health and the wellness of the entire circulatory system. If you have a history of heart disease or you want to prevent it, working with thoughts and emotions can be an effective cardio health strategy. Simply recall a time when you felt really happy and content and bring that feeling back to your mind and body. You'll know you're getting heart health benefits when your breathing slows down and deepens. And when the heart signals calmly back to the brain, you'll be thinking more clearly, making better choices, and improving brain health at the same time. Pharmacist Ben here, urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos too at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is acclaimed criminal prosecutor, Mr. Juan Martinez. Now, Mr. Martinez, you've heard some pretty amazing defenses, including one which claimed the defendant was innocent because they were sleepwalking when they committed the crime. Can you tell us about how you go about proving that a person was not sleepwalking? Mr. Martinez? Well, it seems as though we have lost our contact with Mr. Martinez. We can't, can't, Mr. Martinez, I don't know, you might have a mute button uh, attached or something along those lines. I don't think we can hear Mr. Martinez. For some reason, we seem to have lost him on the line. Well, let me tell you about this case, <laughs> because this was a case that I had an opportunity to to really investigate uh, as we were getting ready to do a program on the criminal justice system. And uh, we'll see if our engineers can get Mr. Martinez back on the line again. Uh, In this particular case, and I will tell you, uh, Charles Friedman is joining me here at the desk. I will tell you, Charles, it seemed inconceivable to me that this defendant stabbed his wife 44 times. 44 times. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that sometime in the middle of being stabbed 44 times, you might hear a scream that the person might might shake you, might uh, put their hands up and fight you off? Yeah, I've I've got to preface this. I, I have never been one of those who was fascinated by sensational murders. So many of the things you're coming up with here are new to me. So as I listen to you, uh, put forward the particulars of this case, I'm, I'm astonished. Uh, the idea that someone could claim somnambulism as a defense for, for murder is, is, seems to me to be on the face of it ludicrous. Uh, you say 44 times. Yeah, it, it strikes me that this person is a very sound sleeper. Well, I, uh, just the fact that uh, the person was stabbed 44 times, my thought was when Mr. Martinez heard that this was going to be homicidal sleepwalking, he must have been aghast. And I understand we have Mr. Martinez back on the line again. Is that right? Yes, I'm back. Thank you. Okay, terrific. So tell us a little bit about the sleepwalking case. How do you prove a person was not sleepwalking? Well, one of the things that was interesting about this case is that the individual, Scott Slater, took many, many steps uh, to carry out the murder. It wasn't a situation where he just stabbed her 44 times. After stabbing her 44 times, he stood over her and kind of looked at her, and she was moving back and forth side to side, and he began to drag her from the dark part of the yard into the uh, pool. Uh, When he got her to the pool, he didn't just nearly throw her into the pool. He actually held her head down, went upstairs and had cut himself with a knife and was actually able to put a Band-Aid on his finger. So the number of times that he stabbed her and the fact that he was so goal-oriented and then was able to do minute details uh, indicated that this individual wasn't sleepwalking and he actually was just kind of... uh, uh, no, that he actually was making it up. Um, there are, there were instances where he had sleptwalked in the past, but the fact that he was so specific about his actions uh, made the case uh, a situation that was difficult for him. Well, I do agree. That's a number of tasks to do in a row, and they all seem very organized and deliberate. But there's really no way to know whether he was awake or asleep, other than it doesn't really seem to make sense that you could complete that many organized uh, linear tasks and not have consciousness. That's true, and uh, that was the um, the difficulty of the case. Um, I, I could stand up there all day and say, no, he wasn't sleepwalking, and the uh, defense could say, yes, he was, and as uh, you pointed out earlier, uh, it, it, I still have that burden to climb, that beyond a reasonable doubt burden to climb. Uh, luckily for me in this particular case, uh, I remember specifically that uh, their expert uh, indicated when I talked to him about all of these steps and all of these things that had happened, whether or not it gave him pause or it gave him doubt that the person was sleepwalking. And uh, their expert uh, admitted that it did give him doubt that uh, that uh, this individual was sleepwalking. So uh, I guess it was a lot of the work that I put into it and, and the questioning of their, their uh, experts that brought about that conviction. And no question that expert testimony uh, plays a big role in these cases. Let's talk about one of the recent high-profile cases you worked on in which you've based your recent book, Conviction, the Jody 
Arias case. For folks who might not be familiar with his case, could you summarize what happened and when you became convinced Arias was guilty? Um, on June 4th of uh, 2008, um, after having driven from Northern California, uh, it took her approximately a couple of days, uh, Jody Arias, uh, after having uh, an afternoon of uh, intimacy with uh, Travis Alexander, after sort of luring him into taking, having him sit for nude photographs in the shower, uh, while she was taking photographs of him in the shower and while he I was convinced to sit down in the shower nude. Uh, she had a knife with her and she stuck it in his chest and began stabbing him. Um, after he began to make efforts to get away, he got over to the sink and was being there. She continued to stab him. He began to lose blood. He began to lose strength. He started to make his way down the hallway. Uh, Pierce didn't make it all the way down the hallway and she caught up with him, slashed his throat, dragged him back to the sink area, put a bullet in his head and then stuffed him back in the shower. Now, as you're doing your investigation, you discover there were some advanced plans. Oh, there were. Um, One of the things that uh, she did was that she actually staged a burglary of her own house and claimed that the murder weapon, the 25 caliber uh, handgun, was actually taken. She rented a car, and when she went to rent the car, she didn't want the red one, wanted a white one because uh, a red one would call attention to her. Uh, she took the uh, license plates off the car when she parked it in front of the house so that no one could identify her as being there. And uh, one of the things that uh, really is truly, um, I guess, just shows how much planning went into it is uh, she actually changed her hair color from blonde to brunette because everybody in Mesa, Arizona, knew her as a blonde. And so that if anybody was asked, did you see anybody going in there, it would have been a brunette, not a blonde. And so she, she took an inordinate amount of steps. Uh, to make sure that uh, she carried out her plan. Now, I have to say, it takes a lot of investigation to figure out and start to piece these things together. The defendant changed their hair color. They rented a car. They took the license plate off the car. And, you know, there were numbers of ways in which she was making sure that no one could identify her as she went to and from the victim's house. Is that right? That's true. Um, she, there is something uh, that we, you know, in this case that I, I would have to say, she was, she's probably, in terms of planning, the most um, accomplished uh, defendant that I have ever seen. Uh, it seemed like there wasn't a single solitary um, uh, detail that she overlooked. She even uh, took extra gas cans so that she wouldn't have to stop for gas in Arizona, or at least uh, would have to buy gas in Arizona. So she she she's, she was truly, I, and it sounds like I'm somewhat fawning over her. I'm not. I'm just fawning at the amount of preparation that she undertook. And, and it speaks to, I guess, the, the amount of thinking that actually went into it. And uh, uh, like I said, I've never seen anything quite like it before. Well, I have never heard of this amount of detail in planning a murder myself either, and it's well explained in your book. Now, we have to take another intermission to hear from our sponsors of today's program, but we'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. Caraccioli Cellars recently celebrated their fifth anniversary of their tasting room. This is what Enophiles had to say. My name is Samantha Cooper. The wines are so beautifully crafted and you take so much time and effort that goes into making it uh, four years to make one bottle of wine and they're just beautifully crafted and they come out so amazing. My favorite would have to be the Brut Rosé. It's very near and dear to my heart. It was my wedding wine actually. They loved it. Edmund Benich. Uh, I love the cuvee. I love the sparkle. It tickles my nose. Sarah Hines. I've been drinking Caraccioli for five years and I love it. You know, I'm across the board on this. I've been drinking their sparkling wine for some time and I love them all. I entertain a lot. I enjoy entertaining using the Caraccioli wines. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel-by-the-Sea or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone at 831-622-7722. Care from the Heart is a dedicated and professional home health care agency that's been serving families in the Tri-County Monterey Bay area for over 18 years. 
We help our clients and their families handle health challenges with determination, love, and humor. When you work with Care from the Heart, we provide assistance with the utmost respect. Your team will consist of nurses, case managers, and home care specialists who will listen and you will design a flexible program to fit your specific needs, either short-term or long-term. You might need help with medication, personal hygiene, meal preparation, transportation, companionship, household chores, or pet care. We can even help you with the dreaded insurance paperwork. If the time has come when you must step into the role of caregiver for a family member, naturally you'll have questions and concerns. Care from the Heart offers classes that provide specific information and skills you'll need to become the positive and supportive influence your family member deserves. And we protect against caregiver burnout by offering periodic respite care for you. Whatever your individual situation, now or in the future, help is available. For a complimentary consultation, call us at 831-476-8316. We can come to you or you are welcome to visit our office in Santa Cruz near Dominican Hospital. Our website is carefromtheheart.net. Hey, buddy, it's me, your laptop. That's right, your little modern marvel of technology you've been abusing for months. Dude, we need to talk. Do you really think that those free PC Fix-It programs are any match for today's spyware and malware? Not to mention the NSA and some of those websites you've been visiting. Now, I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying. You need to take me to Peter and the friendly staff at User-Friendly Computing to get me back into tip-top shape. Tired of unfriendly computer support, slow computer, viruses, spyware? No problem. Call the friendly computer experts at User-Friendly Computing. We take care of all your PC, Macintosh, and laptop needs. Mention KSCO and get a free $50 diagnostic. Visit us today at 505 River Street on the way to downtown Santa Cruz, across from Gateway Plaza. We give you a choice. Drop your computer by the shop, or we'll come to you. Call us today at 423-9653. User-Friendly Computing. We signed an international treaty forever prohibiting cannabis and then turned it into our favorite medicine and pastime. This leads us to ask, can a legitimate industry thrive on an illegitimate cannabis? Join me, Michael Olson, Saturday at 9 a.m. as the food chain hosts cannabis industry luminaries Taylor West, Steve D'Angelo, Lamar Baxter, and Mark Goldfogel for a conversation about the ready-or-not-here-it-comes industry. It's you and me asking whether we should buy stock in cannabis or sell it short. Saturday, 9 a.m. on the Food Chain. What day was that? Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Juan Martinez, who was the prosecutor in the Jody Arias case and has a new book out about that case titled Conviction. Now, finishing up on the Jody Arias case, what was the motive behind this murder? I think uh, in this case, it would be easy to say that um, that uh, he preferred another woman or perhaps he was going to take uh, another uh, a flame to Cancun. Actually, I thought it was a little bit more than that. Uh, it, it was a situation where um, Arias could see the writing on the wall that no matter how many times she and uh, Mr. Alexander became intimate, it was not in the cards for her that it was going to be a long-term kind of relationship. And because of who she was and just the type of uh, individual that she was, she wanted, it seems like she was the type of person who always wanted to have the last word. And uh, the last word in that relationship, uh, if if we're going to have one, um, was to take his life. And in a sense, uh, that's what she did. She took his life because she wanted to have the last word in that relationship. And uh, it was a very loud word. And uh, she was, uh, I mean, she did it in such a fashion that uh, not only was she able to have the last word, but she thought she could get away with it. So this was rage over rejection. I think so. Well, I don't know if it was so much rage because there was so much planning associated with it. She's everybody's, everybody's somewhat complex, but there was a component of rage. There was a component of rejection. But most of all, as we saw during the cross-examination, she always had to be right. And yes. uh, the way to be right in this was to say to him, you're wrong, and let me show you how at the point of a knife yeah, the muzzle of a gun, and uh, she brought those with her, and 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 uh, she carried out that plan, and and that was her way of showing that she was sort of the boss. 
Now, eventually she did confess, but she conf- uh, but her version of the story was it was self-defense. Right. And there was a little bit of a, 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 a more to that than, than just self-defense. She claimed that he attacked her first, and which kind of is ludicrous to think that uh, somebody who was in the shower would have attacked her. What was the deadly weapon there? Perhaps it was uh, his sex organ. I don't know. But that which makes it somewhat uh, difficult uh, defense to advance. But the, the, the other thing that's, that's associated with this is that she claimed that he was a pedophile. Uh, which adds another sort of layer uh, of tawdriness to this case, and then also claimed that he was physically abusive and sexually abusive, even though she kept coming back to have sex with him. So it was sort of a hodgepodge of things put together to show the jury that this was an individual that should be disliked by them to the point that perhaps they could see their way to either an acquittal or perhaps a lesser-included offense. Well, it- feels to me like they were just grabbing at anything. I don't know how being a pedophile had anything to do with uh, a self-defense. Well, uh, well, I mean, I think you hit the nail right on the head because uh, it didn't it it didn't seem like it had anything to do with it. But no. according to yeah, well, according to her, um, this is was all wrapped up in her mindset when he attacked her. Uh, this was everything that she thought about, sort of, so that it became relevant and it was something that um, that the jury could consider. And again, one of the things that I can then step back and say that later on they can't claim that she didn't get a fair trial because the jury considered everything that Jody Arias wanted to cons- them to consider, including the fact or the allegation that he was a pedophile. Yeah, well, but you're you're certainly right. That jury's head was spinning. They there were they had to consider everything in the kitchen sink there. Now, uh, switching gears for just a moment, there's been a lot of debate about whether television should be allowed in the courtroom during trial and whether this impacts how a case is tried. As a lifelong prosecutor, do you feel that having television cameras affected how you or others behaved in the courtroom? Um, I don't think, well, I know that it didn't affect the way I um, presented my case. Uh, I walk in and I actually don't even notice the uh, television cameras when I'm in there. Uh, perhaps it affected others in this, uh, to this litigation. I'm not really sure, but my view is that uh, cameras should be allowed in the courtroom. Um, one of the things that uh, makes our system of justice great is that we don't hide behind the doors. We don't close the courtrooms off and say, well, you're only going to see this or you're only going to see that. And, and to be fair and to be honest, if a paper comes in and writes an account of what happened, number one, it's not complete because you can't give a full, complete uh, story of what happened. And it's actually filtered by the biases of the writer. But if you actually have a camera there showing what happened, no one can dispute that this was said or that was said and this was the demeanor of the witness. So I'm a fan of it and I do think that there is a place in our courtrooms for, um, for cameras and it's not a case that jurors uh, cannot be protected from the media. They can. Um, uh, they are just instructed that they are not to have any contact with the media, and that takes care of the problem. So, so I do believe that that enhances the system. So in your view, it provides another measure of oversight. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way uh, no one can come in and say, well, you know, I think that the defendant said this and her demeanor was that. No one needs to tell you that. You can look at it. There's sort of an instructive quality to, to what's actually going on. People can say, well, well, you know, I can see TV. They solve it and take care of everything in an hour. But this is a long process, and this is how it actually works. And it it just gives the public a better understanding of what actually is going on. And uh, quite frankly, based on what uh, you said earlier, it gives the, the, from my perspective, it gives the public an understanding of how difficult it is to be a prosecutor, what the burden of proof is, how things really work out, and that the defendant is given wide latitude to make to make a presentation of whatever defense they think is appropriate absolutely now i believe in 31 states we still allow for the death penalty and arizona is one of those states did you seek the death penalty in the Arias case i did and you are correct there are 19 states that uh, do not uh, see death penalty as an appropriate punishment mm-hmm. on what basis does a prosecutor decide whether to pursue the death penalty or not there, uh, in, in, in Arizona, uh, there are a number of uh, factors that the, um, that the prosecutors are asked to evaluate to see whether or not they may be present. Uh, and uh, if, and it's a laundry list that's lit, written out in the law, for example, it was more than one person that was killed, 
um, th- those kinds of things. Um, whether it was done for money, pecuniary gain, as they say, uh, there's a number of factors that are listed out. Um, and based on looking at those factors, the decision is made in our cases here at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, they're actually made at the top by the Maricopa County Attorney himself. Uh, it's not a decision that I make. Uh, it's a decision that's made by uh, by the individual that's the elected official. And part of the reason that that is done so that there can be an, a consistency of application to, uh, to, to whether or not the death penalty is appropriate. So you have some, some uh, criteria that allow for a... a uh, uh, a particular case to be considered for the death penalty, and if it doesn't meet that criteria, then uh, it doesn't matter what you recommend. The death penalty is not going to be on the table. Well, what you're saying is that if if, if there are are not any of the factors that are enumerated uh, by the legislature, then certainly we would be foolish to allege them anyway. But but I agree with you. There there is a laundry list, and it's an extensive laundry list, and. Um, and uh, the 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 issue or the decision to to whether or not they are strong enough factors are, are is left in the hands of the uh, Maricopa County Attorney. Do you ever ask the family of the victim whether they want the death penalty to be considered? That's something that is always considered by our office, always mm-hmm. whether or not they believe the death penalty is appropriate. It's not a, it's not the thing that guides the ship, if you will, but it's something that we can that uh, the Maricopa County Attorney considers. I'm sure that has to weigh heavily. Well, they, they certainly have suffered so much. Uh, one, I, one can only imagine what they are going through with the immediate, for example, notification, how that was, how they must have felt, not knowing that they would never see their loved one again. Or holidays when they come in are especially difficult for them. Uh, some have talked to me about leaving a chair open uh, for the individual at Christmas or when their birthday comes around or Mother's or Father's Day. So that's something that they deal with and they will continue to deal with uh, for the rest of their lives. But um, um, we, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office has to consider that along with the strength of the case and whether any of the factors can be proven before uh, the Maricopa County Attorney decides whether or not they allege the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Now we have to take our last break, but we'll be right back to take a look at America's criminal justice system with Prosecutor Juan Martinez. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Costa Report. As a scientist who works hard to stay on top of current events and trends, I know how easy it is to get caught up in the details of a story and lose sight of the big picture. What is happening to society as a whole? Where are we headed? Why does it feel as if there's greater instability, unrest, and danger in the world? The truth is, very few of us have time to contemplate these questions. And if we're waiting for our leaders or the media to paint a clear picture, well, we may be in for a long wait. That's why I'm urging you to grab a copy of The Watchman's rattle. Do it now. Go to RebeccaCosta.com. Find out why scientists, government leaders, and the heads of the largest corporations in America are waking up to a newly uncovered pattern of human behavior. That's the Watchman's Rattle at RebeccaCosta.com, a bestseller in 26 countries and a book that Richard Branson, Donald Trump, and experts everywhere are calling a must-read. That's the Watchman's Rattle, available at bookstores everywhere and online at RebeccaCosta.com. Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmitted. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage, allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, You need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash bigdata. 
Spend a lovely Sunday afternoon in the dazzling beauty of a majestic private garden in Soquel while enjoying food and local Santa Cruz musicians. On May 22nd at 2 p.m., join Santa Cruz Baroque Festival for its Music in the Garden fundraiser. Proceeds from this event benefit the continued operation of the Baroque Festival's annual concert season. Tickets and more information available at scbaroque.org. The sun is high in the sky, which means it's time to get your RV and trailers ready to roll. Hi, I'm Rena Mills, owner of RV Service Center of Santa Cruz, your locally owned RV parts and repair center with over 38 years of service to the Central Coast community. In addition to RV repairs, our qualified staff services and maintains boat, horse, and utility trailers, in addition to toy haulers. We also restore vintage RVs and work hand-in-hand with all insurance companies to ensure that your RV is restored to its original condition. RV owners, RV service will match your insurance deductible with a service voucher of equal value. It's like you pay nothing. Get your RV and trailers ready to roll with the help of your friends at RV Service Center. You'll find us easy to reach and easy to use at 2525 Mission Street, Cross Streets, Mission and Swift Streets in Santa Cruz. Call us at 831-427-0881 or RVSCSC Join me, Ruth Copland, on Saturday evening, 8 till 9, for It's a Question of Balance, the show where we balance the intellectual with the creative, featuring thought-provoking conversations, out and about with people on the street on different topics, and in the studio with inspiring local, national, and international guests from the arts. Discussion and creativity, two of the most vital ways we engage with the world. I look forward to you joining me, Ruth Copland, 8 to 9, Saturday evening on KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Juan Martinez. And just to finish up on the death penalty, what do you say to folks who feel that life in prison without the possibility of parole is the same as the death penalty because it removes the criminal as a threat to society? Well, there's a dual role to the uh, death penalty. One is punishment, which is what these people are talking about, and deterrence. Uh, I I believe that uh, the death penalty... Uh, certainly is a punishment, which is what they're talking about, that one is equivalent to the other. Uh, but the deterrent factor, I think, uh, of course, there are no studies because uh, by nature of the fact that it's a death penalty, you really can't prove that one thing or another. But in terms of the, the deterrence factor, that person who may have been sent to, sentenced to death and is executed will not commit that uh, another crime again, will not commit another killing. So um, that, that, that's one aspect of it. The other thing is that um, at some point, um, society, um, the needs of society have to be looked at. Uh, and, and you take a look at it and, and you decide whether or not uh, the, the sentence is worthwhile going forward. 19 of the states don't think so. Uh, those that still have it, um, believe that they do. So um, I, I do think that, that there's a du- duality to it. Um, it deters those individuals. Uh, uh, and and uh, there have been studies, um, I can't quote one right off the bat, but that seem to indicate that perhaps uh, if the state does have a death penalty, perhaps that's something that does impact uh, these types of cases. But again, it's very, those studies either way are very difficult to um, to come by and uh quite frankly either either one from either side really uh it's just almost an opinion from the individual who who is putting out uh, those studies now we've been talking about the criminal justice system in the United States and it's really difficult to talk about that without addressing the fact that black males are six times more likely to be incarcerated than white males and Hispanic males two and a half times more likely. As a prosecutor, how do you explain how skewed these numbers are and how does this affect how you look at a case? I, I, I never look at the race of the uh, individual that is charged with a crime um, in, in when I go into the courthouse. I know, for example, that uh, if I walk in and I see an individual and I've looked at the facts and I know whether or not they did it, to me it's irrelevant what their race is. So people who want to interject race into this particular thing uh, really aren't looking at what these individuals are doing. 
perhaps it's a cultural phenomenon of growing up, but it really doesn't have anything to, it really doesn't affect the way I look at the case. For example, um, I don't care how many people will argue with me about this. They're all wrong when I tell them that even though Jody Arias is Hispanic, there's nothing I can do about the fact that she's Hispanic uh, in, in light of the fact that she killed Travis Alexander. No one can dispute that. They can talk about cultural diversity and they can talk about race, but nothing takes away from the fact that she put a gun to his temple and sliced his throat. So when we look at these studies that just look at the race, perhaps we had to take a look at those people that, that are charged and, and um, let's say Hispanics or, or African-Americans and see how many of those were actually convicted. And if you really want to take a good look at it, what the evidence was against them? If the evidence such as the one against Ms. Arias was overwhelming, then what, then I really don't understand what the problem is. Why is it that we're worried about the race of the person when really what we should be looking at what they did and, and how it is that um, we think it's okay, I guess, that if you're Hispanic, you get, uh, sort of a bite of the apple. Jody Arias gets a bite of the apple simply because she's uh, Hispanic. I don't see it that way, and I don't see race when I walk into the courtroom. Yet, on the other hand, they're disproportionately represented in the prison population. So, what explanation can there be? Well, um, the explanation, the one that people seem to forget, is that uh, perhaps their crimes are disproportionately more violent than the other crimes that people commit. For example, can anybody debate? that, again, and when I choose Jordi Arias, that her crime was especially horrific. Not only did, this, did she, in a way, sort of build up by being intimate with this individual, stabbed him over and over, close to 29 times, and then stabbing him in the heart, he's dying, chases him down to the sink, stabs him in the back, and slashes his throat, and then shoots him in the, in the um, head. No one can debate that, so she's another person that's added to the statistics. It's not that I think the inquiry is that we start looking at the race and then sort of work backwards, and that that may be uh, a little bit problematic for me. I say let's start with the crime and see what they did and whether or not it was proven. And if it was proven and they were sent to prison, then the answer lies elsewhere, elsewhere, not with race. It lies with something else. Now, in your own county, in Maricopa County, you have a situation where uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio has come under some pressure relative to his racial profiling. Does that? Do you think that has an effect in the types and numbers of cases you see where the defendant is a minority? I'm not really sure because I'm not really <laughs> sure what... Um, you're correct, though. Uh, I'm not really sure what kind of cases have been profiled. Mm-hmm. I agree that he has admitted that he was in uh, negligent contempt or reckless contempt of the court's order. I know that. Uh, but He seems defiant to- at this point, even to the point where you may uh, one day be bringing a case against your own sheriff. <laughs> well, um, he does seem defiant, and I'm only going by what I see in the media. It does appear that that's the way he is. Uh, beyond that, I really don't know what kind of crimes they've profiled. Uh, I do know that uh, with the cases that I handle and, and, and the cases that I see on a day-to-day basis, the murders, because that's, that's, those are the only kind of cases that I handle, um, that issue of profiling uh, never comes up uh, because those, they're investigated. And as you know, when there's a crime, it's a situation where you work from the scene outwards and uh, you go where the evidence leads you not the other way around whereas with profiling um by its very nature you're looking at an individual and then you 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 go to the crime uh the one of the cases that i handle is you go to from the crime out to the individual so his case is really um or that profiling issue doesn't affect my cases Mm -hmm. Now, there's so many people incarcerated right now, uh, and the U.S. has the largest prison population in the world. Uh, And I was wondering if that affects your decision about what cases to go after. Uh, I mean, is there any pressure as a prosecutor to back off of the milder cases because simply the prisons are overcrowded? I know that a lot is made of uh, that issue, and there is um, some talk that perhaps people that are charged uh, with cases involving the use of drugs that perhaps 
rather than incarceration treatment is the answer. And, and, and since I'm not an expert in that area, I yeah. really can't speak to it that well or, or, or cogently to it. But um, perhaps there's something to be said for that. If someone gets treatment uh, and they don't uh, reoffend again, I think that's a good thing. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we also need to look at how many times do they have to reoffend before we finally say that they're done. And so we have to protect society. How many times, for example, must a, must let's just assume a car must a car be stolen from the same person before we finally say, "Well, now it's a matter that this person needs to go to jail." I can imagine if you woke up this morning and your car was gone, you'd be pretty upset. So. Uh, yes, I would be. But <laughs> but I've also owned cars where I wouldn't be that upset. <laughs> yeah. And you know, but we always hear the argument: it's just a property offense. It's just a property offense to the people in court, mm. and not the person who uses it. As They're still a victim. Person. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're still a victim. Uh, before we run out of time, do you have a website where folks can go to get more information about your book and your work? Uh, I, I don't have a website. I don't have a computer, but I know that the book is on sale uh, through Amazon and also Barnes and Noble. But mm-hmm. uh, and the name uh, of the I'm book is Conviction, and uh, it's a terrific book. Breaks down the Jody Arias case in a way that uh, reads kind of like a suspense novel uh, because there's so much detail in it, and I appreciate it very much. I am afraid that that is all the time that we have today. But before we say goodbye, let me take a moment to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Martinez. Thank you for having me on today. I appreciate it. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Juan Martinez, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We are all over the Internet and easy to find. And if you missed the full interview with Mr. Martinez, you can download episodes of the Costa Report anytime, anywhere from Apple iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and our website at RebeccaCostaMyName.com. My guest this week, uh, coming week, is the only GOP presidential candidate to surge ahead of Donald Trump in the national polls before stepping down and endorsing Trump. Dr. Ben Carson will be with us to talk about what a Trump presidency might mean and the need for fair coverage by the media. Don't miss the always insightful Dr. Ben Carson right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 